According to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Join me once again in Proverbs 16, picking up where we left off a week ago. Proverbs 16, we dealt with verses 1 through 9 in main point 1, and then moved on to verses 10 through 15 in main point 2. So try to limit the number of main points by increasing the number of subpoints. How about that? So in main point one, we had subpoints A through I, and then uh, in main point two now we've got points A, B, C, and D. And we ran out of time as we were looking at B and C last week, so I want to make sure we can pick up there and then move on to point D, which is talking about political fear and uh, the fear that we should have of kings and uh, the issues there. So before we get started, let's take a moment for silent prayer and ask our Father for His faithfulness to guide us into the truth. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we do thank You once again this morning for this blessing and joy that is ours to assemble together. We thank You for the uh, freedom in our country to do so. We're not, uh, we're not living here in fear, Father. Uh, there's another attack last night in Egypt uh, the, in a Coptic church, Father, where they had hired police officers to guard them. And uh, one of the police officers that they hired to guard them had got angry with them and shot and killed two of their members. So, Father, uh, we realize that in many places around the world, naming the name of Jesus Christ is, is, uh, is a dangerous thing, Father. And... Uh, here we are in relative uh, prosperity and blessing. Uh, just thank you for your, your faithfulness, Father. Um, hedge us about, protect us, allow for the Word of God to go forth in your will. We thank you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen. All right, and so verses 10 through 15 spotlight kings with a discourse on the ideal king. And, and really, we're having general principles, as is true for all sections of Proverbs, uh, train up a child in the way he should go. When he is old, he will not depart from it. Uh, that's a general rule. That is a pattern as far as how things normally go. It's normal that kids that are grounded in the Word of God from the youngest of age, they will stick with that in their adult capacity. Are there exceptions to the rule? Of course. There's always exceptions. Uh, human volition is always honored in the plan of God, and so we recognize that for what it is. Likewise, with respect to kings, and uh, not every king is righteous, uh, but as a general rule, the, those kings that do, uh, that are saved, that are believers, that, that try to uh, conduct their uh, office as unto the Lord for the glory of Jesus Christ, you're going to have a, a blessing there. So a divine decision is in the lips of the king. That's verse 10. His mouth should not err in judgment. And so we have something that's descriptive in the first part of the verse and then prescriptive in the second part of the verse. Because he is the person in office. God put him there. When he issues a ruling, when he issues a decree, when a king says, um, these people are a threat, we need to go to war. When a king says, uh, you know, we have a problem here, we need to adjust our national policy. The king is doing that in his capacity as the king. The president, the governor, what have you. Substitute your, your political title in there. But when they are in sovereign authority and God put them in sovereign authority, then when they make a declaration, when they say, we think, uh, we think Yemen is full of terrorists and we want to be careful with Yemenis coming into our country, we want to screen them and we want to, well, that's, that's the, that's the, the judgment or the determination of the sovereign ruler of the land. And what this verse is saying is, God put them in office. So when they're speaking in that capacity as the, the king, it's as if God himself is speaking because God put him there. And so we want to uh, uh, be humble before that. We want to be in subjection to the governing authorities that are over us. Consequently, on his part, his mouth should not err in judgment. That's prescriptive. That is, the king who's in that office better be mindful of the God who put him there and better make sure that his decrees are consistent with the will of God and, and that which is pleasing in God's sight and so forth. In verse 11, we, we turn to economic policy. And this was subpoint B, I guess uh, subpoint A, 
centers on our subjection. Uh, the kings are public servants of decrees should be considered as God's decrees. If they're speaking, we treat it as if God is speaking because God's the one that put them in that office. And we are to be in subjection as per Romans 13, as per 1 Peter 2. They are, they are uttering the decrees of God. And if they're rebellious, well, God's going to deal with that. It's not up to us to deal with that. And uh, he has a, sometimes he has a very good reason for giving us wicked kings and that is able to humble a, uh, a prideful nation. Then we talk about economic policy and it should reflect the justice of God. If the king is a reflection of the righteousness of God, then our uh, judicial system and our economic system should reflect the justice of God. If we have uh, unjust scales, if we have hidden uh, weights in our bag, God sees that. So verse 11 says, a just balance and scales belong to the Lord. All the weights of the bag are His concern. So if you've got your crooked weight in the bag that you only pull out and use for certain circumstances uh, and you think you're pretty sneaky about it, God knows every weight that's in your bag, the legitimate ones and the phony ones, the ones that you're using to, uh, to steal. It's really, it's fraud. It's theft by, thro- uh, by fraud and, um, and, and God won't tolerate that. Then uh, I fixed the typo on that screen. It's Deuteronomy 25. I think I had chapter 13 there last week, but it should be chapter 25 in Deuteronomy, verses 13 through 15. Thanks to uh, Ken Bryan who found that at the end of class last week. Deuteronomy 25. Verse 13 says, uh, You shall not have in your bag differing weights, a large and a small. You shall not have in your house differing measures, a large and a small. Uh, so the, your public uh, economic circumstances, your private family economic circumstances. You shall have a full and just weight. You shall have a full and just measure that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God gives you. If you have a nation that tolerates uh, shady business practices, if you have a, a nation that uh, engages in, in uh, unjust commerce, uh, the God of justice is going to uh, not be pleased with that, with that civilization, with that nation or state or community. And, uh, and as such, they'll come under God's discipline in, uh, in short order. Personal and public life, or public and private life, verses 12 and 13. Political figures, public life and private life should reflect the righteousness of God. We see this in verse 12. It is an abomination for kings to commit wicked acts. You know, just because they're the king... Just because they can doesn't mean they should, and uh, if there's no one to stop them, uh, doesn't mean God's, of course, not displeased with their unrighteous activities. And so it is an abomination for kings to commit wicked acts, for a throne is established on righteousness. Not only for what they engage in, but also for what they tolerate around them, what they accept. They, they want to have righteous people, they want to be surrounded by righteous people. Righteous lips are the delight of kings. And he who speaks right is loved. And so kings, uh, um, if they're carnal, if they're not saved, if they're worldly minded, if they're saturated with cosmos wisdom, then uh, they're going to surround themselves with uh, yes men, right? They're going to get somebody that just tells them what they want to hear. Tell them, uh, you know, but not listen to the truth. Whereas a righteous king wants to know the truth. A righteous king wants his uh, advisors to speak, uh, to speak righteousness, to speak truth. And uh, that's the policy there. I think this gets uh, repeated in chapter 20, chapter 25, chapter 29, numerous places where this is an issue. And then ultimately, prophetically, we can look forward to the millennial kingdom where Jesus Christ will be the ultimate expression of this truth, where he won't tolerate wicked people in his administration. In fact, he'll execute the ungodly morning by morning, we're told, in uh, Psalm 101. And that seems harsh. Does that seem harsh? You know, um, I think the sheep and goat judgment is harsh. I think the wilderness judgment is harsh. That uh, the standard of righteousness is the standard of righteousness. Only believers, only born-again believers will enter into the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. So in Psalm 101, verses 6 through 8, My eyes shall be upon the faithful of the land, that they may dwell with me. He who walks in a blameless way is the one who will minister to me. He who practices deceit shall not dwell within my house. He who speaks falsehood shall not maintain his position before me. 
So uh, anyone that's a, a deceiver in his house, they're gone. Every morning I will destroy all the wicked of the land so as to cut off from the city of the Lord all those who do iniquity. And so really there's a mention of the land that would be the land of Israel from the, the river to the river, the full boundaries of the Abrahamic land grant. But then there's highlighting especially the city, to cut off from the city. And so uh, the verb for destroy is really a verb for silence. And it's not clear as far as how the executions are going to apply. I tend to think that the executions will be simply limited within the city boundaries themselves, the city limits of Jerusalem each morning. Uh, But as far as the wicked of the land within the land grant itself, uh, they may not be cut off, they may not be executed, they may just simply be silenced. Uh, as per, uh, think about uh, uh, John the Baptist and his father when he was struck silent for the duration of Elizabeth's uh, pregnancy. And uh, perhaps that uh, that would be the judgment there when I will silence all the wicked of the land. You can also silence them by killing them. I, I won't dispute that. So uh, whether or not Jesus executes the wicked uh, nationwide or just throughout the city limits of Jerusalem, uh, I think it can be rendered either way. And we'll find out when we get there. <laughs> we'll find out the next morning when we wake up in Jerusalem and we see what Jesus proceeds to do uh, within the city itself and throughout the land. All right. And so those are the issues there. I don't know <clears throat> if you want to turn, we won't spend time on it this morning, but the sheep and goat judgment, uh, when he separates them, he's got the sheep and the goats on the different side, and he allows the sheep to enter into the kingdom because of its, the, the, the righteousness of their salvation in the, in the tribulation, and they get to enter into the millennial kingdom. The unrighteous do not enter the millennial kingdom. He casts them into the fire that's been prepared for the devil and his angels. So it's like a, a, a massive execution, a mass execution of all unbelievers. Those are the Gentiles. They get cast into hell for the, for the millennium. They'll come out for the, for the great white throne and then they'll go into the lake of fire after that. Israel and their judgment is in Ezekiel chapter 20, if you want to see that. And there it's called a purge. I will purge the wicked from, from you. And that one I guess we will look to. Uh, Ezekiel chapter 20. I think it's less familiar than the sheep and goat judgment that's in uh, Matthew 24 and 25. Ezekiel chapter 20. And you might think that God is stuck with a bit of a conundrum because God has promised a couple of different things. that, That He's going to regather all of Israel. Every Jewish person on the planet has to be gathered. But then uh, only the believers can enter into the millennial kingdom. So how is he going to possibly fulfill both of those? They seem contradictory. How does he gather everybody? They can't all be saved. Uh, But then how does he put the believers only into the millennial kingdom? Well, this is how, is the fact that he does gather everybody, but then he slays the the wicked. And so as is described here in in the regathering and uh, the, the purging, that takes place. He's going to bring them into the land and then he's going to um, purge, as it says, to purge the rebels. So verse 33 is what I'm headed for. It's a long chapter. Verse 33, as I live, declares the Lord God. That's a vow. That's a vow where he stakes his own life on it. As I live, declares the Lord God, surely with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm and with wrath poured out, I shall be king over you. I will bring you out from the peoples and gather you from the lands where you are scattered with a mighty hand, with outstretched arm, and with wrath poured out. And I will bring you into the wilderness of the peoples and there I will enter into judgment with you face to face. So when he regathers them from the four corners of the earth, he sends the angels and they regather every Jewish person on the planet. But they don't go straight to Jerusalem. They have a stop along the way in the wilderness just as they did when they left Egypt. They didn't go straight from Egypt up to the promised land. They had a stop in the wilderness. That's where they received the law. That's where he entered into judgment with them. And so uh, I will, it says in verse 35, I will bring you into the wilderness of the peoples and there I will enter into judgment with you face to face as I entered into judgment with your fathers in the wilderness of the land of Egypt. So will I enter into judgment with you, declares the Lord God. 
and I will make you pass under the rod. Okay, there's more imagery here. There's more fulfillment here. You might recall Jacob had a procedure where he was uh, handling uh, Laban's flocks and he was handling his own flocks and he would separate them and he would use the rod to separate them. In fact, he even used the rod to uh, to engineer their mating practices and, and how uh, he uh, brought about the healthy sheep for his flock. Well, he's bringing them under the rod. I will pass. I will make you pass under the rod. I will bring you into the bond of the covenant. That is so key. And keep that verse in mind Sunday morning when we're looking at the new covenant in, in Hebrews chapter 8. Because when Jesus died on the cross, he shed the blood of the covenant. But that blood is not yet applied to the nation of Israel. Not until he put, brings them under the rod and into the bond of the covenant. And then verse 38, I will purge from you the rebels and those who transgress against me. I will bring them out of the land where they sojourn, because he promised to do that, but they will not enter the land of Israel. Only believers will enter the millennial kingdom. Thus you will know that I am the Lord. And this is uh, the judgment upon Israel. I believe this precedes the sheep and goat judgment. The judgment begins with the house of the Lord. That uh, the, the wrath of God, the judgment of God is to the Jew first and also to the Greek in that order. And that's uh, what we're seeing here. All right. Anyway, the, the millennial reign of Jesus Christ will be the ultimate expression of a kingdom of righteousness. Finally, the last thing we need to say about kings and even the ideal king, citizens should fear their king's anger and foster their king's favor. Citizens should fear their king's anger and foster their king's favor. And this is a positive statement in the wisdom literature. This is not described as being uh, a carnal or being worldly in view. This is a sanctified way of thinking. That the king that is over you is the king that God put over you. And you want to be pleasing in his sight. You don't want to be an object of his wrath. You want to foster his favor. And, uh, and that's legitimate. And of course it's most legitimate with respect to Jesus. Uh, but even with Jesus, the wrath of Jesus. We just saw how he's executing the wicked morning by morning. You don't want to provoke Jesus to wrath either. So Back to Proverbs 16, what does verse 14 say? In verse 15, it says, uh, The fury of a king is like messengers of death, but a wise man will appease him. So you don't want the king angry. Remember when Jesus is sitting on the throne, he's got a sword that comes out of his mouth. So the fury of a king is like messengers of death. If a king wants to put you to death, he can put you to death. And uh, really, there's, there's no one to, to tell him he can't. And uh, at least through the ancient world, at least through the medieval world, at least through the early modern world, uh, really until you get to uh, the Constitutional Republic of the United States of America, do we have checks and balances whereby uh, the president himself is under the same constitution the rest of us are under, whereby uh, the president is not above the law, the president is not above the Constitution, that if he's going to execute, if, if the government's going to execute an American citizen, it has to be with due process, it has to be with a fair trial, a jury of our peers and all the rest. I guess uh, pre- even before America, you can say Magna Carta and some of the, the aspects of English common law started to really throw uh, a philosophical uh, question on the, the divine right of kings. Are kings above the law? Are kings subject to a law higher than themselves? And if so, how do the citizens administer that or how do human beings administer that? So some of these are are, uh, political science questions that we may touch upon here this morning. Beyond that though, don't make the king mad. (laughs) Okay, Don't make the king mad, especially in the ancient world, especially in the millennium. If, uh, If he's mad, he may just strike you down. And he has every right to do so. Capital punishment, the sword is in the hands of the government, not in the hands of marriage, not in the hands of family, not in the hands, it's it's in the hands of of government at that level of of the divine institutions. Um, Likewise, verse 15, "In in the light of a king's face is life, 
and his favor is like the cloud with the spring rain. And so uh, there we have synthetic parallelism in that verse. We want to foster the king's favor when he sees you. And so, aha, my beloved citizen in whom I'm well pleased. And to find favor in the eyes of a king, you get to you know, sit at the king's table, dine with the king this day, drink with the king this day. You want to be on the king's good side in, uh, in the sense that he's the king that God put over you, see. And so when Pharaoh takes great delight in Joseph, that's a good thing. When Nebuchadnezzar takes great delight in Daniel, that's a good thing. We have examples of that when, when uh, Cyrus and, and uh, Artaxerxes and they find uh, Ezra finds favor in the sight of, of the Persian king or Nehemiah finds favor. That's a great thing. You want the king to be pleased with you. And uh, biblically speaking, if you're a testimony to uh, the standard of God's righteousness, all the better. All the better. All right. Some other passages I think that go well with this. How about Proverbs 19? Verse 12a contrasted with 12b. I think we got both sides of this, the anger side and the favor side in, uh, in this one verse. The king's wrath is like the roaring of a lion, but his favor is like dew on the grass. So (laughs) just choose you this day which one you want. Do you want the king's wrath or do you want the king's favor? Obviously, we want the king's favor. Okay? And are we clear that this is biblical, that this is sanctified, that this is the mark of wisdom that we conduct ourselves in this way. If he too is righteous, then he'll identify your righteousness. He'll identify that you're a believer that's living the word of God and glorifying Jesus Christ in your citizenship. And if he's saved, he'll appreciate that. And he too will uh, be wanting to fulfill his office. And uh, and you can have, even though he's a king and you're a, a peasant or whatever you are, you can still have uh, fellowship over the basis of the fact that you're righteous and you're pursuing the word of God where you are in your Christian walk. And you just tell them, hey, I'm praying for you. And they'll come to appreciate that in, uh, if they have the divine viewpoint to do so. Over to Proverbs chapter 20. I even had a chance years ago when I met Carl Rove at the airport to, uh, after I asked the stupid question, are you Carl Rove? Which of course he was. I'd seen him on TV a thousand times. But then uh, he says, I am and who are you? We shook hands and told him I was the pastor of Austin Bible Church and that we were praying for the president and, and, uh, and he said he'd convey that to me. He said, I'll let the president know there's a Bible church in, in Austin, Texas that's praying for him. So whether he did or not, I don't know, but there you have it. Proverbs 20 and verse 2, the terror of a king is like the growling of a lion. He who provokes him to anger forfeits his own life. I mean, really, how, do you, how long do you want to keep poking that, that tiger, poking that lion? Or you're going to provoke the wild animal. What's it going to do? It's not going to be provoked very long. It's going to eat you. That's what wild animals do. And um, you don't want to provoke the king. Esther. Good examples of this in Esther. A positive example, a negative example. Let's start with Esther 5, I guess. And then we'll go to Esther 7. All right. So back up from Proverbs to Psalms to Job to Esther. Start with a favor side of things here in chapter 5. And uh, in chapter 4 she learns about the plot. There's going to be a uh, an attempt to exterminate the Jewish people. And uh, Mordecai uh, counsels her that she is uniquely suited to, uh, to rescue her people. That, um, and even says, who knows? I like verse 13 here. Mordecai told them to re- reply to, to Esther, do not imagine that you and the king's palace can escape any more than all the Jews. If you stay silent, don't think that just being queen is going to save you when all the Jews get exterminated here in Persia. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. To me, that's powerful. If you blow it in your assignment, God will get it done. He'll just pick somebody else to take your fruit. And uh, so in terms of anything, we're going to do in evangelism or ministry or, or some kind of work assignment. If he wants it done and we're the ones that are supposed to do it, 
But we rebel, we're afraid, or we don't do it. Well, relief and deliverance will arise from another place. Okay, God will send another evangelist to lead that person to Christ, and they're not going to die and go to hell because you're you chickened out on the on the evangelism. He will send a faithful believer to do what you were supposed to do, and then. God's plan is still accomplished despite you, and you come under judgment for uh, defying the will of God. How about that? You and your father's house will perish. And who knows? Here's the who knows question. Whether you have not attained royalty for such a time as this. Ever wonder why God put you there? Why you're in the right place at the right time? In God's plan, you're exactly where He wants you to be. And uh, in your plan, you think, ooh, I'm in the wrong place at the wrong time. No, you're in the right place at the right time. God's got you exactly where He wants you. And uh, stop to consider, when that open door is placed before you, wow, this is why God brought me here. All right, well, let's do this and see what happens. So Esther told them uh, to reply to Mordecai, go, assemble all the Jews who are found in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maidens also will fast in the same way. So they get a prayer meeting going. They get everybody praying in the, in the palace, outside the palace, all the Jewish people for three days and three nights. And uh, while she and her maidens are also fasting, thus I will go into the king, which is not according to the law. So you can't come unless the king summons you. She's going to break the law to, to go in there. And which means she could get executed. If I perish, I perish. We talked about this too, about if you're subject to the authorities, it doesn't mean you obey all the time. You may have to disobey and face the consequences of that disobedience while you remain subject to the governing authorities that are over you. So if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and did just as Esther had commanded him. So it came about on the third day that Esther put on her royal robes. By the way, it's a side point, but you notice for three days and three nights... And that equals on the third day. Okay? That's very biblical. Very biblical. That's not a problem. Don't think that it has to go to the fourth day. You can be on the third day. That expression, three days and three nights, is, is idiomatic and doesn't mean you have to have a full uh, 72 hours and then on the fourth day, uh, Jesus can rise from the dead. He can rise on the third day and that still counts as three days and three nights. Just as the example here. So it came about on the third day that Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's rooms. And the king was sitting on his royal throne in the sitting room opposite the entrance of the palace. And when the king saw Esther, the queen, standing in the court, now he could have executed her because he didn't call for her to be there. She had no right to be there. But when he saw her, she obtained favor in his sight. So the king extended to Esther the golden scepter, which was in his hand. Had he not done so, she'd have been struck down. So Esther came near and touched the top of the scepter. And the king said to her, what is troubling you, Queen Esther? And so we know how the rest of the story goes and how uh, the, uh, the Jewish people, she's going to host a banquet and Haman's going to be invited and the king's going to be invited and turns out real well. All right, let's go to chapter 7 then. So finding the king's favor is a good thing. Finding the king's anger is not a good thing. All right, so they put the the banquet together and they do this. Then chapter 7. Let's see here. What do you want, Esther? Up to half my kingdom. How about that? When the king, the king and Haman came to drink wine with Esther the queen, and the king said to Esther on the second day also, as they drank their wine at the banquet, what is your petition, Queen Esther? It shall be granted to you, and what is your request? Even to half of the kingdom it shall be done. So Queen Esther replied, if I have found favor in your sight, again, you want to find favor, not anger, O king, and if it pleases the king, let my life be given me as my petition, my people as my request. So just don't have me executed and I'll be happy with that. And of course he's like, what are you talking about? <laughs> For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, to be annihilated. And if we had only been sold as slaves, men and women, I would have remained silent. For the trouble would not be commensurate with the annoyance to the king. Isn't that amazing? 
the enslavement of an entire population is not as important as, as bothering the king with something so trivial. But the uh, execution and extermination of her people, okay, I'll bother him for that. So King Ahasuerus asked Queen Esther, who is he and where is he and who would presume to do thus? And Esther said, a foe and an enemy is the wicked Haman. Then Haman became terrified before the king and queen. And so the king arose in his anger from drinking wine, went into the palace garden, but Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw the harm uh, had been determined against him by the king. So when the king returned from the palace garden, and I wonder, you know, was he just going out there to kind of count to ten and cool off, or was he going to come in and and uh, what, what was he going to do? But he goes out there and he comes back in where they were drinking, and Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. Then the king said, will he even assault the queen with me in the house? As the word went out of the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. And uh, yes, it's a bad day for Haman after that. (laughs) So Harbona, one of the eunuchs who were before the king, said, Behold, indeed, the gallows standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high. That was uh, that he originally designed for for Mordecai. Well, guess what? Uh, They're still there. Might as well use them. Um, Anyway, the gallows, 50 cubits high. That's, That's 75 feet high which Haman made for Mordecai, who spoke good on behalf of the king. And the king said, hang him on it. So they hanged Haman on the gallows, which he had prepared for Mordecai, and the king's anger subsided. And the idea on this, the gallows is not the best of renderings. It was a sharp wooden stake, essentially. And uh, you get impaled at the top of it, and it gets wider uh, the lower you go, and gravity eventually takes you lower and lower and lower in the should I stop there? We're having lunch after class. Okay, we'll just we'll let that go. Doug and I can talk about it later. This is kind of old army talker. Marine Corps. But the point made, you want the king happy, you don't want the king angry, and you don't want to bother him with something as trivial as the enslavement of your people. Okay? Uh, the execution of your people, okay, then you can bother him. But don't inconvenience the king, okay? What is convenient to him? What is, uh, uh, what is going to bother him? And what is going to please him? These are all concerns, legitimate concerns. Uh, Job 29, Esther Job. And... Um, I don't know, some folks may think this is appropriate. Was Job a king? Technically, maybe. He was the greatest of the sons of the East. He, he clearly had judicial function. He would issue judicial rulings, so he was a judge, if not a king. And uh, the, the boundaries between kings and judges were sometimes not so uh, clearly understood. Um, so whether he's a king or not, he's not, he's not, he's not called a king, I'll, I'll tell you that. But he is a judge, he does issue rulings. And um, when he talks about the, the fame that he used to have and the, and the esteem that he used to have among the population of, his, of the land of Uz, and they would. They would, um, let's see, I'm headed for 23 and 24, but there's so many things in this chapter. Oh, that I were as in months gone by as in the days when God watched over me, when his lamp shone over my head and by his light I walked through the darkness. So he conducted his life under the standard of God's light, under the standard of of what pleases the God of righteousness. I was in the prime of my days when the friendship of God was over my tent, when the Almighty was yet with me and my children were around me, and uh, when my steps were bathed in butter and the rock poured out for me in streams of oil. When I went out to the gate of the city, when I took my seat in the square. So he does have a public function. He is recognized as one of the, the political leaders of, of us, and uh, if not the actual king, at least one of, the, one of the, uh, the, the powerful men. And the young men saw me and hid themselves. The old men arose and stood. And so even among his peers, 
there was a fear among the younger and uh, even uh, esteem among the, the elders. The princes stopped talking and put their hands on their mouths. The voice of the nobles was hushed and their tongue stuck to their palate. For when he heard, when the ear heard, it called me blessed. And when the eye saw, it gave witness of me. Because I delivered the poor who cried for help and the orphan who had no helper. So his judicial function was a blessing in accordance with God's standard of justice and standard of mercy and is God's concern for the widow and the orphan. Job reflected that in his judicial rulings. The blessing of the one ready to perish came upon me and I made the widow's heart sing for joy. I put on righteousness and it clothed me and my justice was like a robe and a turban. Really it's a type of Christ when it comes down to it. Jesus Christ girds himself with righteousness and justice. Uh, I was eyes to the blind, feet to the lame. I was father to the needy. I investigated the case which I did not know. I broke the jaws of the wicked and snatched the prey from his teeth. Then I thought I shall die in my nest. I shall multiply my days as the sand. My root is spread out to the waters and dew lies all night on my branch. My glory is ever new within me. My, My bow is renewed in my hand. To me they listened and waited. They kept silent for my counsel. After my words, they did not speak again, and my speech dropped on them. They waited for me as for the rain, and opened their mouth as for the spring rain. Now this is language that matches the language of the king when his favor comes upon you. His favor comes upon you like the dew, like the rain, like the spring rain. And so even if Job is not in the office of king, his judgments were such that it was the equivalent of finding favor in the eyes of a king. I smiled on them when they did not believe, and the light of my face they did not cast down. David reflected this in his Psalms, that, uh, that he was able to uh, share his joy and share his courage with the men that were following him, that they would look to him and find, uh, find comfort. I chose a way for them and sat as chief and dwelt as a king among the troops as one who com- comforted the mourners. And so that's the, uh, the example of Job's life. Of course, all of that was lost when uh, Satan afflicted him and, and uh, everyone turned against him and viewed him as being accursed. Finally then, Psalm 30. <clears throat> Even with God himself. And uh, the king of the universe. His anger is but for a moment. His favor is for a lifetime. God has anger. You don't want to provoke the anger of that king. But his favor is eternal for a lifetime. Weeping may last for the night, but a shout of joy comes in the morning. The sun will shine again. So there you have it. All right. Well, that wraps up verses eight through. I'm sorry, ten through fifteen. Spotlight on the ideal king. We got time to handle verse 16 about acquiring wisdom. We've seen this before. It's really featured in chapter 4. It's going to be featured again. What can we say that we've not already said? Well, here's a different way of looking at it. Proverbs 16, 16. How much better it is to get wisdom than gold. And uh, to get understanding is to be chosen above silver. So put them on the scale. Wisdom and understanding are better than gold and silver. If you have to choose, if you're forced into an either-or circumstance, well then, wisdom and understanding takes priority over gold and silver. Uh, Nothing wrong with gold and silver. If you can have them both, then have them both. But just recognize that seek ye first, the kingdom of God means seek ye first. And, uh, and then seek ye second, all these things will be added unto you. The gold and the silver and the food and covering, the things that God knows you need. But recognize too that it is a, a privilege, it is a blessing. Acquiring wisdom is a blessing. Acquiring understanding is a blessing. It's also an unpurchasable privilege. When you acquire uh, wisdom and understanding, you can't buy that. You can't put a price tag on that. When, uh, when you're blessed by the Word of God and you respond in grace to support the ministry of the Word of God, that is a grace reflection on your part. You're not purchasing the doctrine that God taught you. 
You're not buying the Word of God or buying wisdom as if it could be purchased. It is an unpurchasable privilege. And, this to me is the most beautiful part of it, when you acquire wisdom, you know what you're doing? You are reenacting the alpha moment when God the Father begat the humanity of Jesus Christ. Because when we acquire wisdom, we are reenacting when God the Father acquired wisdom at the beginning of His ways, before His works of old. To me, this is a a reenactment of that alpha moment. So when a believer is learning doctrine, when a believer is growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, not only are we benefiting, not only are we growing, but God Himself is well pleased. He has no greater joy than to see His children walking in the truth. That when we acquire wisdom, the Father is so delighted It is a reenactment of when the Father acquired wisdom, when He acquired His Son. And I've got 18 minutes to spell this out for you, so you'll see what I'm talking about when we get to that point. Acquiring wisdom and understanding. As we back up here, so we notice there's a contrast. It's better than gold and silver as we acquire our... uh, our uh, uh, wisdom and our understanding. Remember the verb kana, Q-A-N-A-H, kana is the verb to acquire. And all it stresses is the, is the getting. It means to get. And so it can be a purchase. It can be uh, a conception and a birth. It could be a, a stealing. It could be a plundering. It could be um, any, any... There's a variety of ways we get stuff. legally and illegally. There's a variety of ways that we get things. The the verb speaks of getting, whether it's purchased or birthed or stolen or what have you. Uh, Those are details that that get resolved in, in other questions. So the idea of getting wisdom. How do you get wisdom? Can you buy it? No, you can't buy it. In fact, it's better than the gold and silver with which you can buy other things. It's unpurchasable. <clears throat> so to get wisdom, it's better than gold. To get understanding is a better choice than silver. Backing up to chapter 4, we saw this in the parental wisdom section of the book. <clears throat> he says, acquire wisdom, acquire understanding. It's kana in both cases. Kana wisdom, kana understanding. Do not forget or turn away from the words of my mouth. So with your getting, you don't just get and stop. You get and you keep on getting and you keep on getting and you keep on getting. You don't want to forget. You don't want to drift. Do not forsake her and she will guard you. Love her and she will watch over you. And so um, curious how (coughs) wisdom and understanding are put in a parallel as if they're two different things. And yet they're combined in a, in a <clears throat> female image. They're combined with just a simple her. Do not forsake her. Okay? And, you, and you ask, well, who's her? Who's she? Why is that singular? Is, is her talking about wisdom? Or is her talking about understanding? It's actually both. Combined wisdom and understanding in Jesus Christ. <clears throat> so we... Uh, have it there. Acquiring wisdom and understanding. It's our unpurchasable privilege. Chapter 17 and verse 16. (laughs) Why is there a price in the hand of a fool to buy wisdom when he has no sense or no understanding? Why is there a price in the hand of a fool? Why did you come with money? Why did Simon in the the book of Acts, Simon thought that he could purchase the, the ability to to impart the Holy Spirit to people. And he brought a big bag of money. He was going to bribe the apostles and say, give me that power too. Same thing here. You're bringing money? Why is there a price in the hand to buy wisdom? Are you kidding me? Your bag isn't big enough. How much gold is in that sack? Not enough. Your bag is too small. You can't purchase God's wisdom. It's infinite. So it is the unpurchasable privilege like in Isaiah when it says, buy for me without cost. Because he's already paid the price. 
Proverbs uh, 19 and verse 8. He who gets wisdom loves his own soul, and he who keeps understanding will find good. So we have the getting and the keeping. We have the tandem of wisdom and understanding. See, acquire wisdom, and with your wisdom, acquire understanding. If you don't acquire understanding, you don't have the complete wisdom we're supposed to have. And both of them combined, wisdom and understanding, are the picture of Jesus Christ. The singularity of the her that is uh, spoken of in the feminine here in the book of Proverbs. Chapter 23 and verse 23. Buy truth and do not sell. Get wisdom and instruction and understanding. And so uh, here we have it. And it's a choir. It's a choir. I think it's... um, I don't know, I understand why they rendered it as buy instead of get, simply because the the contrast of selling is there. But I'm fine with acquire truth and do not sell it. I'm fine with that. Acquire truth and do not sell it. We're all here to acquire truth. You're here to acquire truth. I'm here to acquire truth. And we're not selling anything. We're not peddling anything. Our books aren't for sale. Our MP3s aren't for sale. Our notebooks aren't for sale. Our printed notes aren't for sale. We're not here to sell anything. We're here to acquire. Anyone else who wants to come in, they can acquire like we're acquiring. And I appreciate that. So acquire truth and do not sell. Acquire wisdom. Acquire instruction. Acquire understanding. So this is our blessing. Acquiring wisdom and understanding is our unpurchasable privilege. What a delight. He didn't have to do this for us. He didn't have to reveal himself so comprehensively through a Hebrew canon, through a Greek canon, giving us the complete mind of Christ and the completed canon of Scripture. He could have saved us and left us pretty ignorant, completely ignorant. He could have, all, he could have given gospel message only so that folks could get saved, but he wants more than that. He desires for all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. He wants us to know him, to know him and to know his son. And that's uh, our privilege, an unpurchasable privilege. And as we do so, reenacting the alpha moment when God the Father begat the humanity of Jesus Christ. And so we have all of these imperatives to kana wisdom, to kana understanding. It's what God did when He birthed the humanity of Jesus Christ. Proverbs 8. And we usually zoom in on verse 22, but I think it's going to be helpful this morning to back up a little bit and to see who we're talking about with the, the me. Because verse 22 says, The Lord cannot me at the beginning of His way before His works of old. Well, who is this that's speaking? Who is this that the Father begat when He conceived of the humanity of Jesus Christ? And so the kana verb here is the same kana verb we have in 1616, the same kana verb we have throughout Proverbs when we're told to acquire wisdom, to acquire understanding. God acquired wisdom and understanding when He begat the humanity of Jesus Christ. You'll see what I mean by that. So backing up now to verse 12, I, wisdom, dwell with prudence, and I find knowledge and discretion. And so we have here the personification of wisdom, the personification of, of, of Jesus Christ, the Logos. But here he's called the Chachmah, he's called the wisdom. And this is why it's feminine. Wisdom is a feminine noun. And this is the feminine we want to embrace. This is what keeps us from embracing the strange woman, keeps us from embracing idolatry, because that's also a woman, that the influence of sin in this world is seductive. The influence of, uh, of, of carnality is uh, that's the wrong kind of embrace. You don't want to be embracing uh, your sin nature. You don't want to be embracing the world's temptations. You don't want to be embracing Satan and his, his planet program. You want to reject that. Reject the harlot. Reject the strange woman. Embrace the godly woman. This is wisdom here. Anyway, we've done this repeatedly throughout the first nine chapters. It was a, a dominant theme of the first nine chapters of Proverbs. Uh, telling your, teaching your children to not be hugging the wrong kind of women. <laughs> All right. So there's wisdom. I, wisdom, dwell with prudence. And that's who's speaking in the context of chapter 8. I. And so when we find that the Lord cannot me, 
This is when God the Father acquired wisdom. That is the personification of wisdom in the humanity of Jesus Christ. And so we have the pattern there. Down to verse 14 then. Counsel is mine and sound wisdom. I am understanding. Well, I thought you were wisdom. Because in verse 12, it's I wisdom. But remember, with your wisdom, get understanding. Jesus is both. He is both wisdom and understanding. That's why it says I wisdom in verse 12, and then I am understanding in verse 14. Power is mine. All right, so here's the tandem. You have wisdom in verse 12, you have understanding in verse 14, and the Father acquired both. The Lord, that's the Father, possessed me, acquired me, kanad me at the beginning of His way before His works of old. God the Father put into motion a plan whereby humanity would be reconciled to Himself through the God-man, Jesus Christ. And He does so here. Before His works of old, from everlasting I was established. From the beginning, from the earliest times of the earth. That's why we call this the Alpha moment. This is the moment that time begins. Everything before this is eternity past. From this moment we have the sequence of events called time in between Alpha and Omega. And so this is the blessing here. When I acquire wisdom today, when I cannot wisdom today, it's a reenactment of when the Father cannot wisdom at back at the Alpha moment at the beginning of His, of his days. I don't know, I just find that as, a, as an interesting parallel why the Father is so delighted to see His children walking in truth, to see His children growing in the things of the Lord. Because the more truth we grow, what are we doing? We're growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. The more wisdom and understanding we acquire, the more Christ-like we're becoming. And this is a pleasing in the sight of the Father who begat the humanity of Jesus Christ. Alright, and so we have the, uh, the parallel there. Being one that is acquiring wisdom and understanding, then what follows in verses 17 through 20? We'll deal with this in January when we come back from our break. The highway of the upright is to depart from evil. He who watches his way preserves his life. The idea that the Christian walk is, should be a careful walk. Be careful how you walk as wise men. It's not just a, a walk uh, It's going to happen automatically. It's not something you can be lackadaisical about or be sloppy with or just assume that, oh, well, I'm, I, uh, I think I'm in fellowship. Things are okay. No. Don't just assume that you're in fellowship or you think you are. Be careful how you walk. Search yourself constantly. Make sure you are in fellowship. Make sure you're occupied with Christ. Make sure you're, you're walking with Him. And that makes it the highway rather than the, uh, the, uh, the destruction that follows. So we'll deal with that. 17 and following gets very practical in our Christian walk. Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for your truth and the blessing we have to, to study. I pray, Father, that we be mindful of these things, that we consider what it's like as we acquire wisdom, as we acquire understanding. You can't put a price tag on it, Father, because the price has already been paid. I thank you that our Savior paid the ultimate price so that we can walk in the, in the newness of life. Father, uh, that we can make the purchase and yet the cost has already been paid. So thank you for being faithful in this regard, Father. I thank you and praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. I-